This episode of Working Lunch is fueled by comfort food, Franklin. It's been a it's been a heck of a week. Social unrest, pandemic, earthquakes, golf. Mexico has a hurricane forming. I think it's just time for some some good old home cooking, a little running home to mama. What what is Franklin Coley? What's his comfort food when he's just gonna hunker down in the house? Bourbon. Bourbon, Joe. I think a close follow-up would be barbecue. Always here for a barbecue meal, and the sides are, are key there, too. So, you know, some greens, baked beans, uh, maybe some bread pudding. But, yeah, that's that's my comfort zone right there. I think my comfort food is going to be a big bowl of chili with some sour cream and diced cheese on top and some cornbread slathered in butter. And that uh, the quicker we get done this show, the quicker I can move over to that. So, on that note, let's do the show. We need to talk about your flair. I think I'm gonna have to go supersize. We need a political revolution. And we will make America great again. From the home office of Align Public Strategies in downtown Orlando, Florida, this is Working Lunch. Coming up on the podcast, the country finds itself mired in widespread protests and social unrest, and corporate brands are under pressure to engage in the conversation. We'll discuss the corresponding expectations as well as the potential pitfalls facing operators. And the campaign to modernize alcoholic beverage law regarding off-premise alcohol sales, namely to-go beverages and home delivery, is hitting its stride. We'll talk to Mike Watley of the National Restaurant Association, who is the industry's point person on this effort and get the lay of the land. And a number of states have restaurant industry relief packages of their own under consideration. We'll talk to Steve Clark of the Massachusetts Restaurant Association and get the latest on what's happening with his legislative efforts in Boston. We'll have those stories and wrap it up with a legislative scorecard. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the show. I'm Joe Kefauver, along with my Align Public Strategies partner, Franklin Coley. And Franklin, this is probably about the worst week as Americans we could ever imagine how could we be in a situation where uh, as a death toll of our global pandemic goes over 100,000 victims, that is secondary in the newscast to what's going on in the streets around America in regard to the uh, police incident in Minneapolis. Franklin um, touches all segments of, of American society. Obviously, uh, we're, we're focused from a restaurant industry perspective, but our employees, our customers, our shareholders are all in the middle of this and affected by it. And I think corporate brands are in a kind of new world. You know, over the last five or 10 years, there's been a growing expectation that corporate brands come to the rescue when there's some type of natural disaster or hurricane or have a statement ready when there's some type of social unrest. And I think the goalposts have very suddenly uh, and dramatically moved. And I think a lot of companies are in a tough spot as to how to react to what is going on, what is the proper role, if any. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a very difficult place for corporate brands to be. And you've seen a number of corporate brands not engage and some engage. It's been a little bit across the board. I think by and large, I have been surprised by how many corporate brands have gotten out there and expressed concern over kind of the current state affairs. Uh, McDonald's comes to mind, basically, doing a social media post, kind of standing in solidarity with George Floyd, with Trayvon Martin, with Eric Gardner, and literally listing them by name. There were others. Uh, there was, you know, Chick-fil-A came out and made a statement. Starbucks came out and made a statement. Um, there's a number of very big corporate brands that you kind of, I guess you would probably expect it out of Starbucks, maybe out of McDonald's, but then there was probably 10 or 15 others that maybe you wouldn't expect it um, that have come out and, and made statements. And I think to your point, Joe, they feel like we're in this world now 
where they they need to, they have to, to the expectation of their their workers, their customers, their franchisees. The one thing I would say is pointing out kind of the danger in the, the public affairs space, just specifically talking about the public affairs space, about wading into this conversation and, and doing it in the right way and doing it in a smart way. You know, we saw Drew Brees, which, yes, he's a football player, but he's also the owner of a sports bar, Walk-Ons, which is growing rapidly in the public face of Walk-Ons. And he made a statement about kneeling, and he would say it was taken out of context, And but he is getting kind of a shellacking for having a, a tin ear to the nuances of the political conversation. He also, you know, New Orleans feels a lot of these issues more so in other parts of the country and was one of the first places of the COVID-19 outbreak. And so even there, you would think that he would be more in tune with the nuances of these conversations. He was out of step and was roundly criticized for it. And so I think that's a danger for some executives or spokespersons or corporate brands to be out there wading into this conversation in the wrong way. Yeah, I think it's interesting, Franklin, um, on the Drew Brees thing. It's interesting you say that because he, he's come back to, to football for one more year. He's already got a network kind of analyst gig lined up, I believe, with NBC. I could be wrong with that. And I, I would be, I would not be surprised to see NBC walk back that commitment because uh, that's going to, when the dust settles and all this, it's going to be a big focus of controversy. But to your point, I, I think it's funny when, when, when these types of challenges present themselves to corporate brands. You know, in the first few years of the Trump administration, companies were tiptoeing around trying to be very delicate and not draw the wrath of the administration and someone that took some some joy in, in distributing that wrath. I think we're past that. And I think brands, and I guess we're, I particularly have a broken record on this. This one's about your employees. You need to focus on your employees. President's made his own bed. Who will be reelected or not be reelected has, will have nothing to do with what this corporate brand does or not do. That's to me where your ear has got to be plugged in right now. And and don't worry whether the, the president has a you know momentary Twitter spasm about this, that, or the other. Right now, I, I don't think many people are listening to that. So it, it's an interesting, I, you know, it, it's funny. It's, it sounds kind of perverse, but when, when I was in my my tour of duty in corporate America. These are the things I like the best when, when we have these kind of communication and, and public affairs brand challenges and what's the strategy and who the audiences are and uh, triaging uh, the, the pros and cons of this, that, or the other. It's a, it's a very taxing but trying you know, and trying time, but also kind of invigorating. So it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge. Franklin, you know, we won't spend too much longer on this piece because it's, it's all pretty obvious. But, you know, in terms of the political aspects of all this, when you say that CEOs and corporate leaders ought to really dial back their political engagement at this point, I'm not talking about blue team, red team, the president. I'm just saying keep a lid on that aspect for a while. What, what is most striking to me about this, the, the riots and the protests and the demonstrations, is this same dynamic that we've, we've seen play out with COVID-19 and we continue to play out with every issue in that the different, how different parts of the country are impacted differently. And I'm not suggesting that the riots aren't widespread. They're in every state. They're in every city, probably all of your top 100 cities and probably a bunch of 50 other smaller cities. But they're still all focused in urban corridors. You do not see these riots and protests primarily out in suburbs and certainly not in rural areas. And so the same dynamic where the COVID-19 impact has been felt nationally, and it's increasingly being felt in all corners of the country, but has been most acute and most immediate in these urban corridors 
And those just happen to stack up with different political identities. They're largely blue, whereas these other regions are red. And so President Trump, it seems, is leaning into the riots and this crisis and this conversation around race in America with a law and order message. And he's largely speaking to his base, which are outside the urban corridors where these riots are happening. And so if I'm looking at this through a political perspective and where it may go in the coming days, weeks, and months, I think we're going to see a drift and fault lines are already emerging. They began emerging immediately around the rioting and, and the protests and the demonstrations. The same fault lines we've seen on other issues where Trump is speaking to his base, that is, their property is not getting damaged. The looting is not happening at the stores they go to. And so they're watching the media cover this, and they don't believe or they're cynical towards what they're seeing, that it may be overblown or misreported or, or, or whatever. And so that is a much bigger long-term danger. If we can't come together around a pandemic and around you know these videos that have come out recently, it's just increasingly hard to come together around much of anything in the political space. And that is a long-term challenge that brands are going to have to navigate. And so if you're asking me like the political framework, Joe, I think this week is not the week probably to be on stage with the president. You know, Drew Brees has shown you need to be careful about how you approach this, and certainly there's going to be other case studies. And you really just need to be thinking about how these issues are going to continue to play out and metastasize and be careful in your approach and really make sure it reflects your culture. But this thing is going to continue to be fraught with pitfalls. The long-term solution to this is obviously the business community is going to have to step in and lead. And I don't mean a statement today or a tweet tomorrow. I'm talking about leading some of these tough community conversations and playing a role in these tough community conversations. You and I spoke, and I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up now, but a lot of these incidents focus around retail outlets in these communities. And so we have to be kind of part of the solution over the longer term. It doesn't necessarily mean a statement today. I'm talking about over the longer term. We can't just close our eyes, stick our head in the sand, and worry about our P&L this week. we got to figure out a way to engage and be part of the solution. I think that's the more long, long-term long kind of political-slash-policy-slash-community challenge that, that companies are going to have to think through and figure out. So for many weeks on the, on the podcast, we've been talking about the whole changing dynamic with regard to delivery and, and more specifically the delivery of alcohol. And we mentioned and teased out last week that uh, Mike Watley, who is the vice president of state and local affairs from the, for the National Restaurant Association, would be joining us. And lo and behold, Mike made good on my promise and Mike has joined us. Mike, thanks again for coming on the pod. Yeah, thanks for having me back. Good to be with you guys. All right, Michael. So you and I have talked ad nauseum a lot for weeks, weeks, and months here on this overall alcohol strategy and you know the opportunity that the industry has before them to make a lot of these executive orders and other kind of inroads in the alcohol space permanent. What's the kind of current state of play of your overall national approach slash conversation? What, how do you assess the lay of the land? Yeah, so this is an issue that, I mean, is a major part of COVID-related relief of governors and local officials allowing restaurants to do off-premise alcohol because 
when restaurants were shut down for health reasons, there was really no way to sell alcohol besides off-premise. So a lot of executives took power and passed emergency regulations to allow this. And many of those are at some point going to expire. And so this moves to more of a legislative strategy. But I think what we're seeing nationally is that this is really a, a popular development, both amongst lawmakers and also amongst consumers. And I think we're starting to see legislators that are saying, all right, let's make these permanent going forward. This is working now, and it, it makes sense to continue in the future. And, and our message really is, look, even as restaurants are starting to slowly be able to reopen, be it outdoors or indoors in a limited capacity, even once we get back to legally being allowed to occupy 100% of a restaurant, restaurants will still be in recovery mode because there are a lot of consumers or at least certain consumers who are not going to feel comfortable coming back immediately. And if restaurants can't deliver alcohol or do take out alcohol, they're missing those customers entirely when it comes to alcohol. So this is really an important issue. And I think that it's one that resonates with lawmakers who understand that consumers are desiring this, understand that this, this helps restaurants going forward as well. Mike, I've been impressed. This is a space where the industry has been unusually nimble. And I'm impressed with the number of state restaurant and lodging executives that have quickly jumped into the fray here. I think about Texas. I think about uh, Michigan and Ohio and New Jersey and other places where, where, the, where the industry reps have, have jumped in and made a lot of progress in a space that's been very, very difficult uh, to, to make progress on. What, what, what do you attribute that to? Is that a recognition, A, that policymakers are doing whatever they can to, to help the industry and help these small business owners, or B, that the, the politics of alcohol are changing in front of our eyes or some combination of those two? I think it's a combination of, of both of them. You'd already seen a trend uh, amongst especially younger consumers towards off-premise dining and delivery of food. So the delivery of alcohol was the next logical step. But then I think as part of this, you're just seeing how overwhelmingly popular this is. I mean, I, if I can throw a couple numbers at you, we've done polling with our state partners in a couple of states, and the numbers on this are, are just uh, very impressive. When you ask consumers who are 21 plus in states, should the temporary alcohol uh, expansions for off-premise be made permanent in Michigan, it polls at 78% in favor. In Missouri, 77%. And Colorado so far has taken the prize for the highest percentage. 85% of adults want to make permanent the temporary alcohol regulations. That's, I've never seen something poll that popular before in, in our space. And lawmakers are hearing it. If you look at what Michigan is doing, Michigan has a bill to expand off-premise alcohol in the state, and it passed out of a House committee um, on Wednesday, 15 to zero unanimously. It just shows you how popular this issue is. It works for consumers and it works for operators. And, and lawmakers right now are, are doing their best to help operators. And we appreciate that. Yeah, we've talked a lot on this particular podcast about how it, how it resonates across political lines. You just listed those states. It's it's blue states, red states, south states, north states, populous states, rural states. It's, it's very consistently popular. And those old kind of anti-alcohol expansion or anti-change in the system coalitions are breaking down uh, in, in front of us. So Mike, so tell me, you know, where right now, you, you just talked about Missouri, you talked about Michigan. Where Where is the industry, where is your team and your state allies, where are we focused most as an industry? Where are the, where are the five big opportunities right now? 
Sure, great question. First, let's just step back and look at the number of states that have passed this. I mean, we're we're at times struggling to keep track of all the states because so much has happened so quickly. But it is solidly 30-plus states at this point that have expanded off-premise alcohol, which just represents a huge map in terms of opportunities. But for where we are right now, a couple of places to point out. I mentioned that Michigan bill that is moving in the House. Uh, there's legislation that was introduced in Colorado earlier this week with a good number of co-sponsors in the Colorado Senate to expand uh, their off-premise alcohol for, for two more years. There's a bill in Ohio, as you mentioned, um, Massachusetts, a bill just passed earlier this week that would expand or would allow for additional off-premise alcohol as part of a restaurant recovery package. That bill actually passed unanimously out of their house. So lots of activity here. There are still some states we're hoping to get this done on a temporary basis that we can then hopefully make permanent in the future. But in a number of states, they already have it temporarily. It's working well. People like it. popular. And we're starting to move to the next phase of making this maybe not permanent forever, but making it you know two years out, three years out, so that we can keep on doing um, what is working well. We talked last week on on the pod. Franklin and I talked about this. What this well predates your uh, involvement in the industry, but you know, way back when we talked a lot about uh, health and safety and the security of the food supply and the. The, the, the National Restaurant Association and other associations and companies, you know, were very proactive in getting uh, regulators and legislators to to enact, you know, model food codes. And uh, because we, we had a, you know, an ongoing conversation about how our, our industry was really predicated on the, the confidence of consumers that our products were safe. We spent a lot of time in that space and having that conversation. I'm going back my, you know, 10, 15, 20 years. It seems to me there's the same opportunity now as we're, as the industry and, and these, these inroads we're making into a, a system that has barely changed over the last hundred years. You know that the entrenched power entities that are the guardians of the three-tiered system are going to come at you sooner or later, both barrels you know, firing. And one of those, one of those attack lines will be around safety. And I'll talk about uh, miners and access to miners and so forth. I, I think we, we, we would be smart to create a strategy where we are proactively talking about certifying drivers, certifying all the pieces of that delivery supply chain as, as alcohol trained and inoculate ourselves from that line of attack. And, and I think there's a way to do it to, to give not only a lot of cover to, to our allies, would really take a, a, a key talking point away from your from your adversaries. That's a great point. I think spot on. And safety has to be the top concern here. This has to work for customers and has to work for communities um, in a way that when you go to a restaurant, you expect that there are certain safety precautions in place. Your bartender is going to make sure that the person being served is 21 plus. They're not going to overserve someone. They're going to take they have very strict training in the industry. And we have to make sure that that safety that you expect and that the community expects within a restaurant extends to off-premise delivery. So if you look at these regulations, and, you know, it's really tough to create model codes around alcohol because they're, they're so state-specific and so local-specific at times. But in each of these jurisdictions, we're being very careful to make sure there are those provisions there to make sure that for off-premise, IDs are being checked so that it's only being delivered to people who are 21-plus and making sure that containers are sealed in such a way where there's no concern about drinking and driving. And safety really is a priority here because, to your point, 
we have to make this work and we have to make this safe or else this opportunity uh, could pass us by and it could be unfortunate. So we have to make sure that safety is paramount here. Yeah, and there's, and there's a way to say that, again, you don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot, but you know, the fewer people touch a product, the safer it is in a kind of a COVID, post-COVID world. And so, you know, leaning in and owning that that safety space, I think, is is a is a, is a place for us to, to to lean into pretty hard, and 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 really take the take the knees out from the other side on this. Mike, um, have you have you had any? And I know that the alcohol piece uh, is for a certain segment of your membership, and obviously the the quick service guys that don't have a dog in this fight. But has there been any? pushback within the industry? Have different groups within the industry uh, raised red flags on this? Has it been pretty uniform consensus? This is a good thing for all of us. Uh, so far, a good thing for all of us. I mean, there are many pieces here in terms of how, what are the pieces towards restaurant recovery? And some pieces will obviously help certain segments other, more than others. But for this one in particular, this really helps those you know independent dine-in restaurants that were Really just, you know, they were shut down. They don't have a drive through window. They, they didn't have the ability to quickly pivot to off-premise. Not even have now because they're versatile, but alcohol for them was a large component of their sales previously. And if it weren't for off-premise alcohol, that would have been wiped out entirely. But what this is allowing them to do is, you know, be creative. Sell your favorite margarita. Sell your favorite creative mixed drink. Sell wine. Sell beer. Do it in a responsible way, but recapture some of those sales that were otherwise totally gone. And this is also, you know, to a certain extent, it helps with jobs and employment. If you are now able to be selling craft cocktails for delivery, you can bring back a bartender and bring them back, even if you're in a limited capacity, because that is a big labor component. So this is helping restaurants to retain staff and bring staff back. But it really is helping restaurants that otherwise would have been in big trouble because alcohol sales would have been gone entirely. And as I mentioned earlier, there's still going to be a segment of the population that isn't going to feel comfortable coming back into a restaurant for a while. And what off-premise alcohol will allow restaurateurs to do is still reach that consumer segment in their neighborhoods, which is very important. That's a great point. You know, we talked about, you know, over the last five or 10 years, people have gotten so enamored with and used to you know, delivery of products, the Amazons of the world and so forth, that going to the mall is not part of their world anymore. I don't think we'll ever get to that point with restaurants, but certainly the, the dependency and the, the comfort with food delivery isn't going away. Uh, it's here to stay. It took, you know, exponential five or 10, 15 years forward with this pandemic. And so delivery of, of, of products is is part of the part of the conversation now and we'll be going forward. So it's, it's an exciting time in, in this particular space. Michael, before I let you go, I know um, kudos to, to you and your team in a, in a much timelier fashion than probably most of us expected. You've got some significant changes to the Paycheck Protection Program uh, through both houses of Congress and off to the off to the president's desk. Um, so, so kudos to your team on that. What's uh, what's the status of the broader, you know, restaurant relief packages? Has the window closed on that, or is that still something viable? So, so first off, you know, big win for the entire industry, and I wanted to thank my my colleagues, the association, the public affairs team, did a, did a great job, great team effort there. Also, our state restaurant associations were really critical in pushing the PPP revisions across the finish point. And finally, we had thousands upon thousands upon thousands of restaurateurs across the country who took action on our action alert. So it really is thanks for that groundswell of grassroots activity. 
that we were able to be successful and, and really deliver a positive result for the industry. You know, Congress is now going to consider what an additional COVID recovery package looks like. We continue to push for a restaurant-specific recovery aspect of that and look for different ways, different creative ways to continue the conversation in D.C. But as you keep on mentioning, as we keep on mentioning, the road to recovery is unfortunately going to be a long one for restaurateurs. So we're going to continue to push for help from the federal government, help from state governments, help from local governments, be it direct relief packages or be it issues like alcohol to go. It's all these different pieces that will together hopefully add up to a successful restaurant recovery long term. Sounds great, Mike. Going back to the original subject matter of the alcohol folks, you know, if operators across the country uh, want to get involved in this effort and independents and, and large companies and so forth, they should be uh, working with their state restaurant associations or contacting you directly at the NRA. Do you, would you like me to give out your home, home phone number for the, for the audience <laughs> to call you at home and coordinate efforts? Uh, I, would, I would encourage them to first reach out to their state restaurant associations. Uh, the state restaurant associations across the country are really the ones driving the train on this. We're working with them and providing resources and helping on it, but we're seeing really great efforts from state restaurant associations across the country. So I would encourage the local operators to reach out directly to them. We're, of course, always here to help, but this is really a great opportunity for the industry going forward. Good stuff, Michael. All right. I appreciate, uh, I appreciate the update. How about we uh, make a date to check back in in you know four or five six weeks and see how the progress of the of the, of the alcohol program is going and the other programs you're running out there and um, appreciate you uh, being on the pod. This actually may be the last time we you're on the pod before you become a dad again, right? Another Watley on the way, correct? There there is another Watley on the way pretty soon. I, I, you know I'll be happy to make some time for you guys though. Always love being on the pod. Mike, appreciate your time and uh, we'll talk to you soon. So Franklin, as always, Mike, Mike and his team are on this. Uh, I think they're doing a good job. I worry. I think he knows uh, intuitively uh, and is in agreement with me on how you know reframing, the, you know, modernizing these delivery systems is actually a boon to health and safety. And how we've talked about health and safety in the closed system and protecting the, the integrity of the food supply. I hope Mike can get kind of strategic industry consensus on that. It's going to be a hard nut for him to crack and pull all those, herd all those cats at once. Yeah, particularly given everything else that's going on. I mean, the double whammy of reopening after shutdowns and then having some brands, tens if not maybe even over 100 stores damaged and unable to reopen and asking everyone to come together and dive into a you know, a policy debate. So, you know, that's difficult, but it's necessary. Not only do we need to be kind of riding this wave of consumer, policymaker, and public health officials saying, we need this, we want this, we need to be getting our house in order to make the arguments that this is the right thing to do for a number of other reasons, for another number of other health and safety concerns, and we can do it in a responsible way. And here's a responsible way to do it. And if we don't get our act together in that, then we're going to miss this gigantic opportunity. So as we mentioned earlier in our conversation with uh, Mike Watley of the National Restaurant Association, we have joining us to talk about the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, uh, Mike's counterpart up in the State House in Boston, Steve Clark. Steve, with the Massachusetts Restaurant Association, Vice President of Government Affairs. Steve, how long have you been at MRA now? I have been on the MRA for nine years. 
That's incredible. I know I'm getting old. It seems like, you know, I would have said you've been around four or five years, but nine years, holy moly. Well, you guys are um, in, in the deep end up there this session. We were talking offline. Your governor has been getting very high marks nationally for how he has kind of navigated this pandemic, both from a service delivery, protecting his population and navigating national obvious politics on it. And one of the other one of the other things you've been working on up there and you've been working with the governor's office on is a broader restaurant relief bill. And asking my first question, is it modeled after the, the industry's national relief bill? Is it is it similar, different? Talk, talk about the component parts of your restaurant relief bill up there. So, you know, great question, Joe, and thanks for having me on. A lot of the national bill is about financial recovery. And from the beginning, we have recognized that we're going to need three distinct paths to recovery. There's the financial recovery, there's the actual act of getting customers back into our restaurants and reopening. And then it's what can state and local governments do to help our industry. And so we've, we've been of the position that the federal government is pretty much going to drive the financial recovery. Our state does not have the ability to deficit spend. They don't have the ability to write out grants for restaurants to be able to apply for. So we've really been of the position that the federal government is going to handle most of the financial recovery. Obviously, the state's going to handle the reopen requirements in each of the 50 states. They're going to have differing guidelines of how they're allowed to reopen. So this bill is more uh, of an effort from the what can the state do to help restaurant operations. Uh, and from the beginning, you know, our goal at the MRA has been how do we get as many restaurants to the other side of this crisis as possible? And in this bill, there's a number of tools that will help restaurants. I'm not saying it's a golden halo and it's going to solve everyone uh, everyone's problems, but it will provide some necessary tools to, to help as many operators in the state. So, Steve, t- t- talk to me a little bit about the stuff you're doing with regard to alcohol. We have seen, and we were talking earlier to Mike Watley at the NRA, and just about every state were involved in a pre significant conversation, kind of building on these executive orders that allowed temporarily in most cases, cocktails to go, to go delivery, home delivery of of alcohol beverages. And, you know, it's been wildly popular uh, with consumers and it's gone fairly efficiently without a lot of um, incidents of underage or anything like that. What are you doing up there in the alcohol space? How much of it do you think you can make permanent? What's your what's what's going on in that space? So we were early on, uh, along with other states, you know, we were quick to authorize beer and wine. And, and, you know, that in and of itself was an accomplishment. You think about Massachusetts and it's a blue law, it's a Puritan state. We weren't allowed to serve alcohol on Sundays four or five years ago. And now to talk about actually having beer and wine to go is, is a huge change. And our legislature and governor worked very quickly to pass that legislation. Uh, as we move through the COVID process, you know, when we first shut down March 16th, everyone thought it was going to be about a, a three-week close and we back up and running uh, early April. As that time has stretched on, we recognize that we need more and more opportunities for restaurants and give them more of a chance to survive. And that's where mixed beverages has presented itself to be allowed to be sold in that takeout space. And so this bill would authorize mixed beverages. I think 39 other states have authorized mixed beverages to go. So um, it's good to see Massachusetts get on that train. And our operators that we've spoken to are, are excited to be able to do that. And, you know, it's it, Everyone always asks, you know, well, why mixed beverages? And it's, if you want to get that particular operator's Mai Tai, or maybe you want to get the, the, the breakfast place down the street, you want to get their Bloody Mary. Sure, you can make those at home, but it's just better when someone else is making it for you and they know what the ingredients are and how it's supposed to be made. So that's the first alcohol initiative that's in the bill. We also have a second one that talks about streamlining our 
local approval process. For anyone that's done business in Massachusetts, we know that you have a, in order to get a license, there's a lot of friction. Both the, the local authority needs to sign off on any alteration of premises, and then it needs to go up to the ABCC, which is our state uh, liquor control authority, and they need to inspect what your changes is going to be, and then they need to sign off on the changes. And in a normal time, that takes six to eight weeks. So in this bill, this will streamline that process. We'll, we'll completely remove the ABCC sign-off on any alteration of premise, and it removes the 10-day notification of abutters if you want to alter your premise. So as we move forward, and it appears that we're going to have outdoor dining authorized next week as Massachusetts moves into phase two, this is another opportunity for restaurants to just be able to sell on-premise in an expanded space than where they normally are. So that, that, that's the second alcohol component of this bill, and uh, we're really excited to, to get that through, and hopefully our local authorities are working well with restaurants to to maximize those outdoor opportunities. Well, that, that's one of the areas that I've been, I've been particularly uh, surprised by across the country in some states that are not necessarily known for being the most um, quick to be business friendly. That's got you know, a lot of lot of old aging regulatory structure in place, but how quickly policymakers have been have been moving to allow, you know, in many cases, empowering localities to expedite permitting process, do exactly what you're doing, and support outdoor dining where and when possible. And that has happened very, very quickly and nimbly. And so uh, it's uh, kudos kudos to you you all for doing that. Is this package an issue? where you know you're going to need a, a lot of significant grassroots noise from the industry or is this something that's better kind of just quietly through the process you know sometimes it's better to play a little inside baseball and sometimes outside what's what's your take on this so well, you know we're hoping this bill passes very quickly the house introduced this bill early this week and, and passed it yesterday uh, we are already working with our friends on the senate to enact this bill as well and in addition to the governor's office to get this to his desk i don't think it's going to require a ton of grassroots uh lobbying because so many people recognize the impact to the restaurant industry and legislators know that their local restaurants are the ones that are struggling we were the first industry that was shut down on march 16th we are probably going to be one of the last industries to come back whether it's through government regulation or because of customers preferences to come out they may be hesitant to come at first so they recognize that their local restaurants are the ones that are hurting and you know our legislature has always been supportive of restaurants uh, right before the covid struck we actually had a restaurant promotion commission our house speaker had uh, allocated $2 million and created a commission to how to promote restaurants. Uh, and we were putting the finishing touches on the commission. It was right around the beginning of March when all of this happened. And so since then, the commission has been rebranded as the Restaurant Recovery Commission. And so that, in addition to the different pieces of legislation that they put out, hopefully moves quickly. And we, we hope that the Senate will, will take up the provisions, hopefully next week if they can, and then get it to the governor's desk as soon as possible. Fantastic. And Steve, uh, before I let you go, tell me a little bit about reopening and what phase you all are in and what's what's the average restaurant in Massachusetts, where, where they find themselves right now? So, you know, going back to, you talk about how the governor handled Massachusetts. Uh, Massachusetts is, is, is really interesting case study. Uh, we were the third most impacted state for COVID in terms of fatalities and in terms of people that have been diagnosed with positive cases. So the public health data has really been important for the governor as, as we navigate the reopen process. Uh, we do have a four-phase reopen plan that's been rolled out. We are currently in phase one. Uh, I guess restaurants would be considered phase one solely for takeout and delivery in that nothing would have changed from what they could do uh, in a in a non-phase one reopening. Restaurants are going to be in phase two. At the beginning part of phase two will be outdoor dining only, and the latter part of phase two will be indoor dining. There is a, about a 
two to three week lag between phases changing. Uh, Governor Baker is scheduled to have a press conference on Saturday where he's expected to announce the move into phase two. And I think outdoor dining will happen some point next week, whether it's, you know, we're trying for the eighth, it could be the 10th, um, but we expect outdoor dining to be announced next week and there'll be a six foot social distancing outside. And then when we get inside, which is expected to be about two weeks later, it'll be six foot social distancing or a partition installed where you can't do six feet or in lieu of six feet. There's, as of right now, there's no capacity restrictions. It's only the, the, the natural capacity restriction that comes with a social distance table. And there's a number of other checklists that operators have to follow to be open, but it's not far-fetched with what we do every day. You know, as, as we know, restaurants are the most regulated industries out there. Uh, we have to work every day with FDA, state, and local to just to open safely, and our customers put their trust in us to open safely. And so it's something we're used to doing. If you look at some of the other businesses that have to reopen, they don't have to sanitize. You go to the sneaker store, they're not sanitizing that the foot measure device uh, when the next person comes in. But you come into a restaurant, they're sanitizing that table every single time it turns over. So I think we're ready. I think it's it's been a long 77 days. Actually, it's probably more now, 70, 79 days in Massachusetts where operators are, are trying to get open and they want to do it as safely as possible. And I think we're ready and, and we're excited to get back to outdoor dining next week. Oh, man, that's uh, that's that would be a big step. And there's a perfect time of year to be outside in, in uh, Massachusetts in June. Wow. Appreciate all the work you're doing, you know, that is, um, it's not the easiest of legislatures to navigate, as you well know, being a, a former Senate staffer up there. But uh, we appreciate, uh, appreciate all you're doing. And uh, it sounds like you guys are being wicked smart up there and uh, making progress for the industry. You know I couldn't resist. Of course. I, I'm surprised you didn't start with that one. But, you know, we'll, we'll take yeah. it. Steve, my friend, thank you very much. And I uh, appreciate you taking the time to join us on, on the pod. So, Franklin, I thought that was an interesting conversation with Steve Clark. It's amazing in a, in a state that is not, you know, doesn't have a reputation for being most business friendly. It seems like they've got a really good dialogue going with the governor. Um, I know the reopening process has been kind of slow but steady and dining rooms are still slow. But uh, it's impressive that the, the Massachusetts Restaurant Association is approaching this restaurant relief in a holistic way with a package. I think that's pretty smart play by those guys. It's definitely the right way to do it. And, um, I, you know, we've had a in many other states, and we'll go through it in the scorecard, we have all these pieces and parts as kind of one-offs. I think in terms of strategically messaging the importance of all these things and how they work together, bundling them together in one big bill is a great way to approach it. And if we're doing that in half the states of the country, by the way, that also gives us a big kind of momentum boost to try to get something federally, which is going to be a heavy, if not impossible, lift because every industry is making their arguments in D.C. right now. So I like what they're doing. I think it's great, and I, I think we should be doing a lot more of it around the country for a variety of different reasons, but also to try to move the needle at the federal level. It's time for the Legislative Scorecard, where we go around the country and update you on the latest regulatory and legislative developments this week. And Franklin, uh, let's start with uh, what happened in the world of COVID-19. Senate took action, I guess, a lot faster than we thought on the uh, Paycheck Protection Program. Yeah, I'm really surprised how quickly this has moved. And the Senate basically picked up the uh, House-approved version. Now, the House had made changes to bring their version into closer alignment with the Senate, but the Senate was still kind of bluffing that they were 
not going to pick up the house version of publicly bluffing. And they basically did. So as we reported last week, they're going to drop the threshold from 75% that have to be used to payroll to 60%, extend the period to 24 weeks. That will end on December 31st. So you can't start in December and then go 24 weeks. Uh, but those are, those are very significant changes to the program and changes that employers have been uh, lobbying for and screaming for for a while. Franklin, uh, switching to the, the liability, we, we talked about Senate Majority Leader McConnell and his insistence on liability shield for businesses in terms of employees or customers contracting corona. But states have gotten into the act. We've reported on it before, and it um, uh, looks like things are moving in Louisiana. Yeah, there's a bill in the governor's desk there that would create a liability shield at the state level in Louisiana, essentially protecting employers that follow federal, state, and local guidelines from civil actions. And this is similar to other bills that we've seen in North Carolina, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming. Uh, we've got two bills like that being considered in Arizona and Ohio. So we've got a lot of activity at the state level with the failure for the feds to act. This is going to continue to be an important issue uh, moving forward. I think we're just beginning to see kind of the tip of the iceberg um complaints and class action suits and all kinds of activity in the space. Well, right on cue, speaking of complaints and class action suits, McDonald's continues to find itself in the middle of this. They're just getting pinated uh, by the labor community. What is, what's the latest and greatest in the McDonald's space? Yeah, so this week uh, we had activity on a Chicago area lawsuit. Uh, it basically it's advancing after it looked like it was going to be tossed, but it's, it's advancing and and workers there are arguing that the area locations are a public nuisance because, um, you know, McDonald's is not properly protecting workers, customers. They're essentially acting as a, as a public nuisance. This is this line of legal arguments often using in strip clubs and other other, I guess, places of ill repute um, that have a negative impact in the community. So. That lawsuit is proceeding at the same time we have a similar uh, class action suit that is taking off in the Oakland area. And in both, McDonald's has put forth, I think it's like a 68-page manual on best practices in this, in this new environment. And that's obviously in addition to meeting all local, state, and federal guidelines. So you got to think that they're kind of ahead of the curve. But, yeah, they're getting battered. So this Oakland class action suit makes similar claims that they're not taking enough uh, precautions to protect workers. They've had infections in this one Oakland location, and we've actually been talking about it for some weeks. All this is being organized and funded by the Fight for 15. They're in the lawsuits. They're pushing the lawsuits. At the same time, they have, in both of these cases and in other places around the country, filed complaints with uh, state and federal wings of OSHA, of the Labor Department, so this is uh, this is just ramping up, and we had we had some activity at Walmart this week. Similar type of complaints being made. You know, it usually starts at Walmart and McDonald's before it starts trickling down to the rest of the retail and restaurant community. So I think employers would be smart to watch what's going on in these cases and. Uh, to the extent you can um, begin inoculating yourself. And under the Rahm Emanuel mantra of never let a good crisis go to waste, you know, related to what you just said, New York State, uh, we've got a legislator up there talking about you know, eliminating the tip credit. Think that has any legs? I can't imagine that it does. But 
you know, we've, we've always got to keep our eyes open in New York State and New York City. So it's something we'll continue to watch. Frank, on switching gears to uh, paid leave, we've been, re- you know, reporting the last couple of weeks on a, the latest effort on paid leave in, in Colorado. Uh, a little bit of activity there this week. Yeah, it advanced to a key Senate committee, party line vote. Now advances to the Appropriations Committee, which is usually kind of a final step in the process. We're talking about paid sick leave for every one hour for every 30 worked, up to 48 annually is pretty standard paid sick leave requirement. The one thing that's notable is during a public health emergency and now would qualify, the bill requires employers to provide at least 80 hours of additional paid sick time for full-time workers. And and the key there is just to remind people that, that yeah, the committee vote was a 3-2 party line vote. The, the, the hiccup there has always been having Democrats get on the same page. So if Democrats get on the same page in, in Colorado on this issue, it's going to sail through. But that hasn't been the case so far. So it's one to continue watching. Franklin, Seattle addressed the paid leave issue with regard to gig workers. You know, it's a one-off from core restaurant industry workers, but it's always precedent setting and the conversation continues. What happened in Seattle? Yeah, legislation to extend kind of the temporary paid leave benefits there is sailed through the city council. Um, so expect the mayor is going to sign it. To your point, Joe, it's, it's kind of a one-off. It's delivery drivers, but this is increasingly an important part of, you know, the restaurant business model. We've seen a lot of activity in the delivery space and all kinds of things. So it's, it's something that we will continue to keep an, an eye out for. There's a lot of a lot of progressive municipalities and states are looking to dive into this space and create kind of these, um, what's called a portable benefits regime, if you will. And Frank, on switching to labor policy, an issue we've been following, the Labor Department uh, finalized its its rulemaking on the work week method of calculating overtime. Yeah, the Labor Department announced its final rule on the fluctuating work week method of calculating overtime. This involves paying bonus and incentive compensation and then kind of leveling it out over time to stay under those overtime thresholds. So if you utilize that method or you want to utilize that method, you'll want to pay attention to this. The rule takes effect 60 days after its publication in the final register. So it's through the process, but it needs to be officially published in the Federal Register, then it'll be in effect. And again, talking about gig workers and, and precedent setting, uh, New Jersey is moving, uh, made some progress on portable benefits this week. Yeah, I mean, we talked about Seattle. It's very similar. We're talking about New Jersey now. We'll, I'm sure we'll talk about Philadelphia later, but they're all related. In New Jersey, this legislation has been hanging around for a while. It kind of slowed down. It had some momentum then slowed down because of COVID-19 but it's now passed the Senate committee. It would create a portable benefit structure in the state for gig economy workers. So this this would be a first of its kind at the state level. And I think this bill was floating around prior to California AB5, but after California AB5, it, it really kind of took off. And I think some states are going to look at this type of model rather than going the AB5 approach. So for that reason, we need to watch it. It may not directly impact us at the moment, but certainly a rewriting of benefits law and, and, and recreating the benefits regime in the state is going to bump up against anyone's business model. So it's something that's that's worth keeping an eye on. And just across the river in uh, Philadelphia, our, our favorite little San Francisco of the East uh, was at it again this week with their municipal elections. Yeah, and I, they're still counting votes here, but it looks like the ballot measure is going to pass that is going to approve a city-level labor department. Now, this is not 
uncommon at this point. It's uncommon on the East Coast, as you indicated. Uh, you know, the Seattles and the L.A.s of the world have their own little mini labor departments. You know, New York City has its uh, – uh, it's not really a labor department. They're structured differently, but it's like a civil rights division that does a lot of this type of stuff. But anyway, this is a legit labor department that will enforce scheduling, wage and hour, the new – portable benefits regime for dom- domestic workers. So this this is precedent setting and will be important to watch not only for the state of uh, Pennsylvania but for other progressive cities in the uh on the East Coast, the New York Cities, the Montgomery Counties. If this works and works well to uh labor advocates liking then we could see it popping up elsewhere. Uh and Franklin, one of our uh companies Panera uh one of the, they had a Franchise group of the of the company had a significant uh, wage and hour settlement uh, announced this week, and uh, this settlement has been hanging out there for a while. It's approved by the courts this week, and I'd forgotten about this. I mean, we reported, and this was proceeding along the same time that uh, a similar overtime suit against the company itself that ended up being a two million dollar settlement was was proceeding. This is like a year or so ago. Anyway. $4.6 million class action settlement across 300 locations and 900 assistant managers. The bottom line is they reclassified or the guess, you know, the settlement is sealed. We don't know all the details, but based on the other case, it's assumed that, you know, these assistant managers were reclassified as hourly employees ahead of the Obama era overtime mandate, which is now defunct, and never kind of reclassified back. Or, and the bottom line is they got caught in a mis- misclassification error here, and the tab is pretty hefty. So th- they are not the only company. Chipotle had some similar issues with this and had a big settlement, you know, a, a year or two back. And I'm sure there's more that are floating around out there, but you got to be careful with that wage and hour law to they can come back to bite you. All right, Franklin, uh, let's talk a little bit about delivery, a uh, little bit of activity in both Massachusetts and, uh, as we talked earlier, with, with uh, Steve Clark uh, and Los Angeles. Yeah, in uh, Massachusetts, we have this big relief bill, and an important piece of that is uh, delivery-to-go cocktail sales in particular, and then uh, delivery fee caps at 15%. So, yeah, we want to make those, uh, we want to be able to get those to go cocktails here into the future. And so the thing seems to be moving in mass. Uh, we'll just have to see how it, how it goes through the process. In LA, similar deal. We have an ordinance capping delivery fees at 15% and all other fees at 5%. That is a done deal. And switching to just alcohol itself is, you know, both Mike Watley, uh, talked about at length and, and, and Steve to a certain extent. Uh, going on everywhere across the country. Let's start back in Colorado. Uh, a couple different things on a couple different tracks going on there. Yeah, we've got off-premise sales via takeout and delivery. That's going to go extended to July 2022, and that's pending legislation. That's probably a pretty good chance of making it through. And then the governor has extended his executive order for 30 days that would allow to go and delivery purses alcohol. So Colorado seems poised to continue some of these uh, allowances into the future. And moving on to uh, Illinois, we, it was just a matter of time. I think it's pr- pretty perfunctory, but the governor approved that bill. Yep. He signed to go and home delivery of cocktails, other 
adult beverages for at least a year. And once again, Louisiana uh, making noises. They just expanded kind of a, a law that they already had on the books, correct? Well, they were allowing thir- they were allowing delivery for beer and wine through your workers, or restaurants workers, or retailers workers. Now they're allowing it through third party platforms, and that uh, bill is in the governor's desk, likely to be signed into law. Uh, some activity in Michigan. Yeah, lots of activity in Michigan, actually. So. We've got legislation kind of moving through the process there would allow to go and home delivery of mixed drinks and liquor. Also, legislation that would create, you know, quote unquote, social districts or party districts or entertainment districts is another term that's used. Essentially, you know, think about New Orleans where you can walk around outside on the streets in specified areas, not everywhere in the city, but in specified areas um, with an open container. This is becoming much more popular all over the country as restaurants and bars are pushing more dining outdoors, right? And cities are moving to shut down streets to allow for spillover into the streets. And so essentially, a lot of cities are looking at turning that closed down street that has all the restaurant capacity out in the sidewalk and into the street. Now they're just going to allow people to walk between the restaurants. And so we'll, we'll see how that goes in Michigan. And I expect we're going to see that in other places as well. Finally, it allows for bars and restaurants also to purchase alcohol from traditional retailers, not just that wholesale community in the second tier. So you could go to your local grocery store or, you know, Sam's club or Costco, whatever, and uh, get liquor or beer. And I expect probably Restaurants and retailers want to do that for a while, but uh, that gives greater flexibility, obviously. Switching to uh, Pennsylvania, uh, which is a, a control state, the state runs the liquor action, if you will, in Pennsylvania. Some uh, some movement there, too. Yeah, temporarily, they're adopting kind of this expedited approval process so that bars and restaurants can get approved for outdoor seating. You know, normally this is a multi-month, kind of multi-year process, and so Pennsylvania is doing what a lot of states are doing, and and we just kind of mentioned in, in the context of Michigan, they're quickly approving this this spillover into the sidewalk, parking lots, and streets in some cases to allow for more out, outdoor dining. And speaking of control states, down in Virginia, some movement there as well. Yeah, so Virginia is one of these states that you know essentially have total control, um, and there's you know a handful of these states, largely in the Southeast, where, you know, the state agency controls everything, all tiers, all sales of, of alcohol. And there's not a whole lot of innovation in those types of systems. Virginia is trying to get a, a little innovative and creative, and they want to start doing delivery in this kind of COVID-19 environment. They will still, the state will still control everything, but they will start doing delivery. And so I think we note that, Joe, because any kind of loosening or changing of that old inflexible kind of, you know, vestige of post-prohibition uh, is notable. And even though it's a small change in Virginia, we could be the first in many changes. Yeah. And as a, as a general rule, the, the control states like Virginia, like Pennsylvania and some others are not necessarily have been bastions of uh, innovation and in changing with the time. So seeing even those states kind of uh, getting with it and trying to figure out a way to help these these retailers and restaurants stay in business is is meaningful to, uh, to your point. So, well, Franklin, another another good scorecard, another week, uh, very heavy on the alcohol uh, and delivery space. Uh, why we had two segments on the earlier part of the pod on that. 
but we'll continue to watch uh, what's going on. There's been expansion of, of paid leave in a couple places, and we're starting to see headlines where people are coming out and, and beginning to advance uh, those proposals. So we're going to keep an eye out for, for that as well. So uh, stay tuned, and uh, we'll have another scorecard next week. Well, another week, another pod. Franklin will kind of end this podcast, kind of where we started. It's it's uh, uh, lamentable, uh, but sort of predictable about what's happening uh, in terms of social unrest right now. And you and I were both struck by a statistic that the Labor Department uh, released this week, just showing the challenge, the employment challenge facing the African-American community. Yeah, and- Essentially, that it was in Iran and Politico, and it's fewer than half of African-American adults are employed right now. The unemployment rate is somewhere between 15 and 20 percent, but taking into account those that are no longer working or you know those that are working in the informal economy, half. And you combine that against the numbers around COVID-19, where African-American and other minority communities have dis- been disproportionately impacted and, of course, are disproportionately working in essential jobs also and, and have had to report into work during this period for those that are working. And you combine all those things together against the backdrop of George Floyd and the protest. And yeah, I mean, it's just a deep sense of frustration, I think, in some of these communities. And uh, labor organizers are the first to put all those pieces together and make those arguments that these are all linked concepts and all contributing to socioeconomic and essentially oppression. So, you know, one of the things is we've seen some employers step forward and make statements. And I, I think we talk about it a lot that increasingly expectations are rightly or wrongly that employers are going to not only make a statement, but play a role here. And um, certainly the labor community is going to make those arguments. And so it's something for employers to think about. You know, where's the appropriate entry point? If there is one, what does it look like? You know, moving beyond public statements and towards moving the needle on some of these issues, where are the places that employers can plug into community efforts to try to try to change some of these dynamics for the better? And I think that's something we'll uh, all be wrestling with for a long time into the future. It's you know, the hard work of figuring this stuff out takes a long time. So, yeah, unfortunately, Joe, I think these are conversations that are going to continue for a, for a while to come. Yeah. And uh, in the meantime, you know, let's let's all hope that uh, we can we can stay safe. And, you know, the I think the headlines have changed the conversation a little bit and we're forgetting the pandemic, if possible. But we're still spiking in a lot of states. So we've got a long way to go in this in this in this process, too. So and on that note, I hope everybody can stay safe and stay informed and we will talk to you next week.